if you live an aligned life, if, if you can sort of kill two birds with one stone for the things that you want to do, then you'll be less likely to be derailed doing those things. Hey, what is up? Welcome to the 2017 reading review for the Going Deep podcast. My guest, just like last year, is Mike Dariano. Mike is phenomenally well-read. I traversed to his home in Ohio to learn a little bit about what he's been reading this past year and what's struck him as particularly poignant. I also got a few recommendations in there as well, but really sincerely encourage you to check out his blog, The Waiter's Pad, and all the cool stuff that he's doing. I get smarter every time I read his work or listen to his podcast called Mike's Notes. Hope you will subscribe and check those out as well. Without further ado, here is the 2017 Reading Review with Mike Dariano. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So, I'm almost 100% sure you're the first ever three-time appearance on the Going Deep uh, podcast. Is there a belt for that? I forgot the belt at home. <laughs> Maybe we'll make like a commemorative one for the fifth appearance. But I, I really like this. After last year when we did the reading review, um, got some good responses from it, got some inspiration myself to read a few books, and uh, just am happy to be doing it again, this time in person, which is an exciting change of pace. But uh, thank you so much for letting me in here and, and talk with me again. Thanks for coming. So we are going to start off, we're going to run down uh, a couple books that we read this year, why we liked them um, and what's up and then why other people should read them. Uh, so I'm going to give you the mic first and kick it off with your first book recommendation. Okay. My first book recommendation is The Evolution of Everything by Matt Ridley. Uh, the subtitle of this book is How New Ideas Emerge. And what Ridley does in this book that I really liked is that he looks at these different domains of humans, whether it's human evolution, human uh, religion, human literature. He looks at all of these different things and he makes the case that the way we've gotten to here, the way that our world has come into existence is by all these tiny bets on things. So it's not uh, one person decides that this is a great idea and so we're going to do that, but it's it's sort of one group tries this and one group tries this and then the better idea wins out. So there's a lot of evolutionary thinking in this book and a book that it pairs well with that didn't make my list for this year is um, the book that's about the iPhone and it goes through all these different things that had to come together to to make the iPhone, the mining that has to happen in South America, the patents and university research that had to occur, the marketing that had to occur. So all of these things, even things that we see as being almost uh, divine, like Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive creating the, the iPhone, even these things that we see are the results of a lot of little work that build up into one big thing. Yeah, there's a ton of complexity and the the expression that anything like that, like this laptop that we have here, no one person could actually make this laptop. Forget the, the cost of making a single one or anything like that. Just the degrees of complexity and expertise for each single facet really makes you appreciate everything that we have available to us. It really does. And, and if we want to extend Ridley's thinking from the book forward, it's that if that's how things have traditionally happened, then that's how things are going to happen again in the future. So we can look at, um, you know, one of your books from last year, Kevin Kelly's The Inevitable, and we can see that, or we can we can guess that in the future, it's not going to be the sharing economy because 
somebody says it's going to be the sharing economy. It's going to be all of these small bets that evolve into something that becomes the sharing economy. Absolutely. Or it's interesting that you mentioned it pairs nicely because that's actually a little theme for me of some of my book recommendations. And the first, it's actually, I actually put these two together. So I don't know if this is cheating or not, but The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis and Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Another thing we talked about last year was the idea of like a big light bulb book. And it, after you read something, it feels like you just kind of see everything in a slightly different way and have access to this knowledge that was otherwise not there. And Thinking Fast and Slow is a really big, a really thick, a really dense book that I just don't think I could have gotten through if it hadn't been for reading Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project first, which is something of a biography and summarization of both Kahneman and his partner Amos Tversky's works. Um, and so those two together, and, and that, that's another idea that I've kind of taken from you or, or explained away different, getting like a toehold, whether it's listening to an author for hour on a podcast before you read their book or other ways that you can kind of get a foundation for information before you move into the real meat and potatoes of it. Yeah, and that's that's a really nice pairing you have because there's so much background that Michael Lewis provides about who Danny Kahneman was, what his experience in Israel was like, what his academic um, resume looked like as he met Amos Tversky, and then as they went on to do their research. So as you left those books, what is one way that you viewed the world differently in what way after reading those books? So also another one that just wasn't planning on mentioning, but was also nudged by Richard Thaler. And he calls it the click were uh, phenomenon or it's system one, system two. And I think with anything related to psychology, it's easier to see it in other people. So I can see there's certain things that I do and it's a click were moment for my girlfriend or it's a click were moment for my buddy at the gym or what have you. And that is kind of step one. And then if you can start to see yourself doing that as well on, on, a, on a level of self-awareness, like, oh, as soon as that happens, I just, I just automatically get into this mode unconsciously. Um, you, you start to just, for me, it's about interacting with other people and how there's triggers that could either put them at ease or cue them up for certain actions. So you haven't seen it in yourself yet, but you, you can see these things in others. I would say that it's few and far between times when I'll see it in myself. And I don't know if I've necessarily gotten to the point where I've drastically changed a behavior because of it, but it's hopefully <laughs> moving in that direction. So just, I have two kids, just wait until you have kids and then your kids will be doing something. Um, one thing that my kids have done where I came uh, to understand this a little bit better is my kids say, actually, um, I want ice cream for dessert. Actually, I want cookies for dessert. And they kept saying actually all the time. And I wondered, I said, why do you guys say actually all the time? It's because I say actually all the time. So um, once you have that sort of reflection from either children or you can uh, view yourself almost like as a third person or like in, in the video game world where you're detached from your body, um, I think those things will start to come. I've read both of those books and um, I, I don't think I can see them in myself any better, but it's nice to be aware of them. At least you know they're out there. At least you know that this is something that exists in the world and it's not just you and it's not totally weird. And it's also something that even chasing the goal of really changing a lot of those behaviors is, is probably fruitless because it's instituted in you from such a foundational young age that you might be able to make small adjustments, but there's 
parts of your nature that just are what they are. Mm-hmm. And you can and you can approach those things as uh, is this important or is this not important? So um, I'm, I've been watching these YouTube videos from IDO and the Stanford D School, and one thing that they talk about is is people will ask them questions, and the designers, you know, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? And, and the designers will say, you want to just do the things that really matter most. And so if you can just find like those three or four things that matter most in a design, that's what you need to hit. And so I think with our behaviors, you know, we're going to have biases and all of Kahneman's research, you know, as Charlie Munger says, even if you're aware of your biases, there's times you're not going to be able to stop them. So I think even just like an awareness of it is going to help. Yeah. And I think there's also a degree of being able to empathize with other people and just understand that everyone's kind of got forces acting upon them that they're not even aware of and has these habits. Like we all have it and it allows, I think the one definite effect has been I'm much more accepting of not necessarily like a blow up of someone else, but like those little habits that many would just be irksome. You can kind of understand like they can't help a lot of what might be happening there. So we can't help a lot. Of none of us, none of us can. No, um, that actually, it, I wasn't planning on domineering this much at the beginning of the conversation, but there's another book that I have on my list that just is right in line with that. I had something of a, uh, a year of reading psychology books and games people play by Eric Byrne was really impactful for me. It's called the basic handbook of transactional analysis. And like many uh, schools of thought in psychology, there is a lot of argument. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not this analysis is valid and how much of it is scientific versus uh, speculative or just kind of philosophical. And in the same way, I, I don't take any of the words, I mean, even the reproducibility issues with thinking fast and slow and some of these biases uh, is well documented for the world of psychology. But just in terms of getting another model or another explainer into how we default into emotional reactions or immature reactions in the face of stress or in the face of certain triggers, it also prompted a lot of discussion with my girlfriend, Ashley, just kind of about each other's buttons that we inevitably push spending so much time together. So I would strongly recommend that one as well. So um, what is something specific from this book that you took and that you applied uh, into some part of your life so that once you did this, once you applied a part of this book, you're like, oh, rather than doing A here, I'm going to do B here and B leads me down the path to overall better outcomes. So I have to tread very carefully here because there there's a degree of... Um, with some of these responses, even sharing them is perhaps pushing against a degree of intimacy that you might have in a relationship. But to take it down to a one-on-one level, there's some basic mechanisms according to games people play where instead of relating to two people as, you know, we're two adults right now having this conversation, you get moved into a child-parent interaction where I'm going to act more like a child and expect the reaction of a parent to a child as opposed to two people coexisting. And so with that, there are are clear times when in the relationship that happens either for me or for Ashley. And instead of trying to fight it, there's ways to just kind of go with the flow of it and move into and and just move past it more quickly, if that makes sense. Uh, It does make sense. So how much of, if you had to rate the importance of empathy, how important is empathy 
using the games people play framework or is it something else that this book is promoting? Empathy is a lot of it and then also just it's um, identification like okay we're in this scenario now like the, the same way that if the reason you train and train and train and train is so that you can quickly identify a scenario that's in front of you and know what to do next as opposed to taking too long and actually moving slowly being the cause of failure I mean that to take it to ultimate frisbee there's times where you have to identify the play that the offense is running and then you can just react defensively as opposed to following which is recipe for uh, failure so this is kind of, uh, it sounds like this book helps promote another pattern recognition tool yes. where we, we, we have these, um, we have these relationship tools where I can tell if, um, if someone is, is happy, I can tell if someone is angry, but we have these tools in other areas where I can tell if, um, this play is going to happen or that play is going to happen, or we need to come up with this solution for a business. You know, if you practice and you do those things and you recognize where you are, then you're going to have a better chance of solving that rather than reacting to the the heat of the situation exactly you have all these different reactions that you could use and a certain play dictates this certain limited list of reactions and you can automatically get to that shorter list by knowing some of the default plays that could come in so is this book for someone who this book is for anyone in a relationship this book is for who who would you gift this book to if you had to create a fictional person that this book could really serve who would that be I don't know if this is a great gifting book because it could be very easily misconstrued or taken the wrong way as to why you would gift the person the book. Like I think there's a lot of there's a lot of subtext to why you gift a specific book to someone, but the fictional person would be a friend that you are very close to <laughs> that you have a lot of trust with and has a willingness or a, a, basically a willingness to be candid about those same types of inner reactions or realities that plague us all, but we don't always necessarily like to acknowledge. Like it has to be, it has to be someone who is very comfortable with those kind of uncomfortable truths that are relevant for everyone. And that's, and, and that can be really hard um, to, to be honest and truthful with yourself Yeah. where, um, yeah, that can be tough sometimes. Yeah. 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 So what, what's uh, your next book? Okay. My second book in this book, um, kind of goes along with the evolution of everything and it's called the age of ambition chasing fortune truth faith in the new china and it's by evan osnos this was a book i had heard um, evan osnos on one of the npr programs he had just come back from north korea i think and i thought well that's that's kind of interesting this guy went and you kind of go into north korea as a journalist expecting certain things there's rules you have to follow you know you're only seeing you know you you're seeing North Korea, but you're not seeing all of North Korea. You're seeing the parts that you want to see. And so one of the things that I started doing with the books, if I if there is a book that sounds interesting, I'll go to Marginal Revolution, Tyler Cowen's blog. And in the search field, I will search for the author. I'll search for the title of the book just to see, um, you know, what, what Professor uh, Cowan has to say about it. And this is one of his recommended books. So The Age of Ambition is... Um, it's almost the antithesis of the evolution of everything, where China has achieved what it has because of a lot of top-down infrastructure. We're going to do this. Uh, this is how things are going to be done. There's a lot of rules for what people can and can't do. But even even in within those rules, what has ultimately worked in China, at least as I interpreted the book, is that things have to bubble up from the bottom. Even though you have so many things, 
from the top down, things still have to bubble up. For example, one part of the book that has really stuck with me is this, um, some minister of culture is talking with a filmmaker and the minister of culture is like, why don't we have, you know, why can't we produce movies at the same rate as some of the other countries in the world, like India or the United States? And, and this filmmaker says, well, uh, look at Kung Fu Panda, two, uh, two really classic identifiers of China, Kung Fu and pandas, and who creates this movie but somebody in the United States. And, and the filmmaker makes the case. And he says, the reason that this movie didn't come out of China is because it would have been viewed as an insult to to the heritage because if you've seen this movie, this panda is sort of bumbling. He's not very talented. He sort of eats his way um, through his problems. And, and it's a very American story where, where your strengths... Um, can be your weaknesses, but it was a nice point of view about a part of the world that I really had no experience in. It was, I know very little about China, and this book was um, a small glimpse into it. There's a a book that's name is escaping me, but it's by Jim Rogers, uh, former hedge fund manager, about driving his motorcycle through China about 20 years ago. And now it was so weird, literally, like just the other week, there's some video of his daughter circulating around the internet where she is completely fluent in Mandarin and they've made a very pointed decision as a family to reside there and absorb that culture because he just thinks that is the great forthcoming power of the world and will supersede the U.S. at, at some point in time. And I think that it's something where you can either get uncomfortable with that notion, you can try to fight against it, or you can just kind of acknowledge that, you know, taking a a long view of history, there's this tide of changing world powers and and centers of culture. So I think it's really interesting to that same end of in terms of where culture is exported from versus where culture is imported from. There's there's another push where they're trying to create the first kind of world pop superstar world pop icon to start from China and that's a that's almost a form of soft power as opposed to like the hard power that with military might and other things that that are more traditionally associated with what makes a world power a world power and I just I think it's gonna be really really fascinating to see whether it's in technology or in culture or in military strength how the the tension between our world and theirs continue to collide. And that's and that's a good point because this this idea of, of tension between China and America it it's it's really a nuanced tension where there's so many businesses that exist in this book and so it surprised me because I th- you know my first thought when I think of China is is the red flag with the yellow stars and then maybe my next thought is the Olympics and then after that um, I have these opinions and perceptions but how much of that is fact I'm not sure and this book did a nice job of introducing some nuance to how I understood it. So this was this is one of the first really good books I've read about Asia in a while. You went to Asia. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so what was something that you saw during your time there that was a real eye-opener? Where So in my book, um, I'll write in the margin, wow, I had no idea for something that just surprised me, good or bad, pretty or ugly. What was something that you saw when you were there that invoked that kind of reaction? The biggest thing is just the the pace and the urgency kind of around everything. So whether it's the traffic in, in Vietnam and the insanity that that is, or the fact that while we were in Chiang Mai for two months, I saw five new construction projects start and there were multiple other buildings that were being renovated or torn down or what have you. 
And that's just not something you're used to seeing in Pittsburgh or Ohio or, or just in general, to be to be perfectly honest, outside of a, a few super cities that are continuing to expand and grow. There's a, you know, we talked about Tyler Cohen before, the, the complacency across a lot of America. It's completely the opposite there, whether it's in Thailand or Vietnam or any of the South Asian uh, countries. Singapore is just exploding. Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia was continuing to grow. Um, I didn't make it to China, but that is right at the top of the list and getting to Shenzhen before it's a complete behemoth. <laughs> yeah, I guess it already is, but yeah. And it's And so in reading a book and going there, you get to see these things where um, it's really, it's it's nice that it's eye-opening because you're reminded that, oh, I don't know everything. I don't know um, that my, the the way that I live isn't necessarily how other people live. And intrinsically, we all know this. We all know that we're not right about everything in the world. But if you ask somebody, what are you wrong about? They're going to be hard-pressed to come up with their list of things. So we know we're, we're not 100% 100% accurate, but we don't know what we're wrong about. So I think that this is books like this that take us to another country, that take us to another place, traveling that does this in real time, that really um, gives us a point of view, I think, th- that we all need. The other thing that I just completely took for granted and, and can be added to that kind of motto is infrastructure. Like we, the way that you think about infrastructure and the storyline house, oh, we have so many bridges that are um, below grade and, and we need to you know, fix all this stuff. But at the same time, we have this amazing highway system. You can get basically anywhere and not really, I mean, at least when I drive, I don't really feel much, if any, anxiety. And that is completely the opposite in, in, the, in the same way. So like the 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 almost joy of not having anxiety or the, the um, pleasure or, or safety associated with that, um, I 100% took for granted for my entire life. And now I completely appreciate it basically every time I get on the road. Mm-hmm. And these are and these are two ways to solve problems. We have, we have um, this is one way you can build a city and, and you could build bridges and roads. Um, so in anything that we do in life, sometimes I get trapped into this false duality where I think, have to do A or B, but it's because I'm not thinking creatively enough where there's A and there's B and there's C and there's D and, and it goes all the way down to M and then it comes back up like a ladder and, or like a snake. And so these, this kind of thinking, if we really open our minds to big, to big books like this and to these kinds of ideas, well, I think will teach us to think in new ways. That, that goes on to the third book I wanted to share. is called Happy City by Charles Montgomery. And this book is all about how do you want to design a city? I, I got to go to Manhattan for, my, for the first time this summer with my family. And just walking around Manhattan was another eye-opening experience. We're like, oh, you can do this. This is another way that you can design a city. In, in Montgomery's book, he makes the case that, that part of the reason people are somewhat dissatisfied with their lives is because of the environment that they live in, where being in the car is is not um, the ideal space for humans. Being separated from other humans is not ideal. And if you make some small changes, if you change density, or if you change infrastructure, or if you make these adjustments, then you can have cascading effects on the way that someone lives their lives and the place that people live their lives. And that was another book where it was just this reframing of the world and how I perceive the world. And it got me thinking nicely. What are some, based off of his model or, or ideas, where are some ideal places to live? For me or for Charles Montgomery? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, for you, maybe for people in general? One thing that Montgomery makes the case 
four that I um, didn't really appreciate and understand in the book is is smart density. So if you think about density, um, you can think about being in a crowd at a theme park or you think about waiting in line or you think as you're cruising down the interstate and there's um, uh, a lot of density at the exchange to get off or to get on and the easy pass lines are even blocked. So Montgomery makes the case that if you do density well, if you balance the things that people need, you can have more of the things that people want. So if you have a thousand people living in a square kilometer, there's certain services you can offer. If you have 2,500 people, there's more services to offer. So even though you may be closer to other people, your situation may be more compact than you wanted. Your living room is smaller. Your uh, commute is slightly busier. There's more things to do in that area. And there's certain key indicators Montgomery found. Like people are mostly willing to walk half a mile for just about anything. So if yoga is half a mile away, people will walk to that. If your grocery store is, you'll walk to that. If you get farther from that, then you need some sort of infrastructure. But there's ways that you can design that. So if you study what people do and you survey people to see what they say, you can design things in a smarter way. So for me, as I was thinking, I thought, you know, I don't like to be in the car. So if I could walk more places, I would go ahead and do that. If I could ride my bike more places, I would go ahead and do that. So for me, Montgomery urged me to sort of reflect what's important in my life and what would I like to emphasize. And if I don't live somewhere that offers those things, could I? I dig it. I think that that density part is really interesting also, not just in terms of choosing where to live, but choosing where to situate yourself because as much as we're moving in the direction of e-commerce and all this other stuff, there are some certain things that have to be physically close by for you to do. I think that's another good one. Um, To that end, uh, I, I read Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain and, you know, Pittsburgh is fast becoming a food destination for a lot of people. And yet there are basic um, skills or understandings or awareness around what's going on inside the restaurant that we're just not privy to. So uh, there's, there, there is a push, you know, um, having glass and being able to see into the kitchen and all this other stuff. But at the same time, a lot of people aren't paying attention to that. And so not only are, is his story hilarious and entertaining, and he caused a real stir when he came to Pittsburgh and, and left a less than glowing review, but stuff like don't order fish on a Monday and probably want to stay away from the Sunday brunch food and, and, and these other kind of ideas... I definitely emerged from reading that book a much savvier consumer of food. And that was paired with being in Asia and walking these different markets and having to figure out, all right, I'm going to stay away from those sausages over there and maybe, you know, take a look at some of these other items that are available to me and trying to fine tune that filter of what's safe to eat, what's adventurous, what is a absolute stay away and simultaneously what can I, you know, really take advantage of and make sure not to miss? And I think that uh, it's definitely definitely recommended for any foodie in your life. So it sounds like what this book gave you it it gave you it gave you the next layer behind the kitchen. So you understood you understand what a restaurant is, and and, and you see you start to see this with 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 children is you'll go into some uh, go into a restaurant and and you and I as adults know that the waiter will come around and, and you you order your beverages and you order this and then you order this and then there's a certain sequence of events. So mm-hmm. we know that children don't. So children have to learn that first layer of what it's like to go to a restaurant. In reading Kitchen Confidential, you got the second layer around the restaurant. This is how they get their fish. 
This is what a Sunday buffet looks like. This is what the kitchen staff is actually saying about you. This is how often your food gets spit in. So um, is that is that something that you really dig if you can move from the first layer to the second layer of something? I really enjoy that. And it also is a tool for relating to people in that world. So under, like just understanding the difference between a chef and a sous chef and the other certain roles that make up a kitchen and what that hierarchy looks like. And, and there's a degree of being something of a renegade and you know not wanting to even abide by the standard. And, and Anthony, Anthony Bourdain completely fits that bill. I aspire to that same type of mentality to some degree, but at the same time, he worked his way up from culinary school grad to just working uh, like in a very small role on and on and on up to a feature chef. And so despite being this renegade, he was simultaneously abiding by the hierarchy that's present in that world. And I think that's just really interesting to piece apart to some degree in whatever industry you may be trying to break into or relate to. So is An- does Anthony Bourdain's story career advice for somebody where if you were if you had a younger brother and they were just starting college, would you tell them, do what Bourdain did, enter the restaurant industry and play by the rules and learn the basic skills, but also cultivate this interest in literature or writing or develop your own ideas about a situation? I think it's good advice. I don't think it would be the first book I would hand someone for, from a career standpoint. Um, but I, I do think that there is a lot of this is the reality of the situation for someone who's interested in pursuing a career in, in the culinary world. I think that there's a lot of relevance there. And then there's maybe one lesser degree for people outside that realm. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. We one more book on, on your end. I got I got two more books. Two more. One is um, the Tiger by John Valiant. This this book is wonderful. Everyone who who on Twitter who saw that I was reading it said that the Tiger is so good, you're gonna love it. And then everyone that I've suggested and gifted it to say that that's a two a.m. book where you you you're reading it and then you look up at the clock and it's two a.m. and you're like, oh crap, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get up in four hours. So this is the book about what happens when a tiger attack someone in this rural part of Russia. And there's really two stories about this in this book. And one is what it is like to hunt this tiger in Russia. So you get this, um, you get the effects of government and as they trickle down and how people will react to it and how maybe there's someone that the government situation trickles down and they're in a good position but individual reacts poorly. And you get another instance where the government trickles down to an individual who maybe um, you would expect to act in a not great manner. And they're maybe one of the heroes of the book or something like that. And so that's one story. But then the other story is the story of nature and evolution. And um, why is this tiger there? What role does the tiger play? How does the tiger see the world? Because um, after the tiger makes an attack and some of the tiger hunters come in, they talk about experiencing like the tiger and seeing the world through the tiger's eyes. And um, it's not a book that's about empathy per se, but I like these instances where um, you can just you can just suggest something totally crazy. And if you adapt that mindset, you'll start to th- think of things. So what if I was a tiger? How would I act if I was a tiger? Uh, James Altitude does something like this where he, he just says, what if I was an alien for a day? Like I'm an alien in a human body. What would I do? How would I look at the world? And so it's like donning another set of, of glasses as a way to see the world. And and the last 30 pages of this book are better than any 30 pages of any book. It, the ending is, is so magnificent. And it, it's a work of fiction? 
This is a, a work of nonfiction. It, it's really about um, these guys that, that hunt this tiger in the Russian Far East. And it's um, much like um, the book about China or this book about cities in, in my trip to Manhattan. This book just took me to another world that I didn't know existed. I wasn't aware of um, how people lived and that people people live like that. Well, I mean, one part of this book is, you know, they're talking about um, in the 1970s, Russia, these people didn't have running water, they didn't have indoor sanitation. And, and sometimes we forget that, um, sometimes I forget that living in my comfortable first world existence with, you know, internet that is up 90% of the time that, you know, I don't face the same challenges or life situations as other people. Is there a part of you that yearns for that like that that almost wants to go find that or does it make you appreciate where you are more it makes me want to understand what i have in common with the people in russia and what i have in common with the tiger because i know that in some ways they are me because they're people and they're living um on the planet and there's not that much separation from where I am in Ohio in the United States and when where they are in this part of Far East Russia. So the human condition, I think, is the same. And so I want to understand in what ways we're the same. And I think it's more than than I would first estimate. I dig it. Um, it's actually weird that I just said that because that was not a conscious decision. But the next book that I really resonated with was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And hit one of his one of the phrases in that is to dig stuff and i've started using that almost incessantly since reading the book and it is another one that transports you not only to a different time but something of a different mentality and so kerouac it's it's obviously a work of fiction and it is a book where very much like the tiger i could not stop myself from turning the pages and was transfixed just by the mindset of the main character and this willingness to go with the flow and just kind of wherever the wind took him, so to speak, was where he was and completely not just present in it, but lost in it in a way that is really hard to articulate. And I I tried to embody that because I was reading it as I was traveling through Asia. I tried to embody that to the best of my degree, which is not something that I think I come by very naturally. And so it was this really fun game of, you know, people have the WWJD, like what would Jesus do or what would uh, whoever do? And, you know, what would Kerouac do in this situation? Like how, how would he feel? Where would his head be? And whatever it was, just trying to um, completely embrace it. So when you did this, and um, and I have to agree that if you can read anything loosely related to either where you're traveling or how you're traveling, it just enhances the full experience. It's mm-hmm. like another, it's like another sense to it. But so when you adopted this, this Kerouac mindset, was it helpful? Um, yeah, because I mean, I don't think I've actually talked about this much. Like when I first got to Chiang Mai, I had a little bit of a little bit of a panic attack. And the place we stayed the first night we were awoken at 2.30 at the night with bugs crawling on the walls. So we were freaked out and there there was no degree of feeling like settled in it. And I would say that I never reached a point of complete 
it, it probably would have been unwise to like completely just let go of any of the fear or anxiety about what was going to happen next. But it, it subsided slowly and slowly and built into more of a confidence and a comfort. And I think that that is as much of, um, as much of a takeaway as anything that I, I could have had and, and how it helped me. It sounds like it made you more flexible. Yeah, more flexible and more just even the notion that like there's supposed to be a plan all the time and, and letting go of that to some degree was helpful in those moments. Uh, do you think that it was written in another era, another time? Do you think that made it resonate with you more or less or the same? It contributed to the resonance. It, it, it increased how much it resonated with me because it felt more timeless and less topical. It's not like, hey, I was just there. You need to go check it out. It was, you know, this is a common human experience of going and wandering and, and finding new places and getting lost and that being a, a part of the ride. That's um, after listening to a couple of the Ray Dalio podcasts, one of which with, with Barry Ritholtz, who was on your podcast, who did uh, interview Ray Dalio. And one of the things that Dalio says to look for is you look for out-of-sample tests for financial investments. So you want to see, you know, was this true? Was this thesis true 20 years ago? Is this thesis true in, in Canada, in Europe, in Asia, wherever? Whatever you're trying to test, you want to see if it's true in other places. And I think that's what some of the books that we've talked about have um, articulated for us, where on the road, is it was true in, in the 50s or, or wherever it was written. Um, we, we can see patterns in the undoing project and thinking fast and slow and nudge. So if we see these things and they keep coming up either in a different place or in a different time, I think they they resonate as more true with us. Absolutely. Totally agree. Do you have one more one more book? I have one more book. This one is called Early Retirement Extreme. I found this book um from the blog of the same name. And this book is is part of the um the FIRE movement. FIRE stands for Financial Independence uh Retire Early. And um, I like this sort of little uh, outcropping of the internet because um, it's another way to view the world where um, sometimes you can get really caught up in a in your own situation and, and you can think that this is this is what is normal and, and you can talk to other people and you're like, whoa, this is not normal <laughs> at all. Like like um, in happy cities in uh, Eastern Russia, in China, and then um, th- looking at things through an evolutionary lens. So what I liked about Early Retirement Extreme, the book, is that it reframed everything. And it created this um, way to think about alignment in your own life, where what the author wants you to do is he wants you to make decisions that... Um, align so that if you're doing something, it satisfies multiple ends. So if you're going to um, choose to exercise, it's better just to do be a generalist exercising rather than training for a marathon. Because if you want to train for a marathon, you have a very, um, you have a regular schedule where you want to have long run, short run, cross training, long run, short run, day off or something like that, where if you miss one of those days or if situations arise where you can't do one of those things, then that that will disrupt the whole thing. Whereas if your goal is fitness, well, you know, if you have a day where all you do is stretch, then that's all you do is stretch. And then you do body weight exercises and then you go to the gym or you do spinning or you do yoga. So that's much more flexible. And then on top of that, if you can keep your options open but still pursue an aim, uh, you can you can have... Um, 
multiple ways of doing something. So if we stick with the fitness example, you can listen to podcasts as you can exercise. If part of um, your goal is just fitness rather than marathon training, you can walk the dog. So we have a we have a nine-month-old Labradoodle puppy here. And when I walk the dog, I get exercise walking the dog. But I also do... Um, sort of a family chore where because the dog is tired, our family can do something else. I listen to podcasts while I walk the dog. So just in this one act of walking the dog, there's sort of three things that I can satisfy. And if you live an aligned life, if, if you can sort of kill two birds with one stone for the things that you want to do, then you'll be less likely to be derailed doing those things. That makes sense. I also just, um, I think it's uh, Steve Jobs quote, like once you realize everything has been kind of artificially constructed by other humans, it c changes your relationship with every idea. So s 65 as the age of retirement, because that's when someone decided social security starts is basically an arbitrary number. There's no like scientific, deeply researched reasoning behind that. Um, and I think that that's just another way to inject more creativity into all your decision making by breaking those models that everyone just kind of holds because well that's the way it is yeah why why um why does why is college somewhere you go for four years and you sit in a lecture and and as as i've done more podcasts and i've watched more youtube videos um i almost get frustrated if if normal speed is the only speed. You're listening to this now and you're at one and a half or you're at two and a half speed or whatever it is. And that allows you so much more. It allows you to experience new ideas and have them come together. And so why isn't that the norm? Why isn't it the norm to have everything recorded and then you go and discuss? And some teachers are doing this. Some some schools have flipped their classrooms where when you're in school, you do the homework with the teacher. And when you're at home, you watch the lecture. So it's nice to always to, to question some of these things that we're making assumptions about in life. Yeah, and that's where you get to run the experiments and find the new stuff that's going to work. Um, uh, the last one that I want to talk about is a book called King Warrior, Magician Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. Have you ever read it? No, I've never read this one. It is, uh, it is pretty intense. It is... Uh, talking about the relationship, these these standard archetypes for masculinity and the relation between childhood and the manifestations as an adult. So each of these types, the king is this generative force, um, speaks truth, creates opportunity for itself and others, is a outgrowth of the nurturing that you had as a child. The warrior is ready to battle, ready to fight, ready to protect if need be, um, is an outgrowth of your experiences as a, as a child. And really, in reading this as a man, you deeply reflect on your own actions and your own ideas of masculinity and the understanding that some of these archetypes are timeless, have been tried and true, whether it's through religious scripts or stories or fables that have been passed on through time. And it is a, in a world where there's so many self-help and personal development books that are out there, it is one that does not necessarily prescribe a specific recipe for success and, and, and doing well, but allows you through self-reflection to come to something that works for you, in my opinion. So this book, there's four parts. There's the king, the warrior, the magician, the lover. Yes. Um, when the authors introduced a name for it, did that make it resonate more with you? Where you could say, oh, that's when 
the king or that's when I was being, do you, do you adopt yes, these 100%. things? Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. So I actually, so I, I have a, a group I meet every two weeks and it's a, a couple other guys and they had already read the book and they, they've been talking about it for a while. And I finally pulled the trigger to read it. And it's not only personally a way to, to frame things and communicate with myself, but also communicate to one another. So uh, we, after reading it, we talked about these two instances where I was not the king. Someone could have used my perspective. I could have given them the, hey, that's not going to work. Here's why. Here's what you should do. And not in a way that is like in any way mean or, or tearing someone down, but giving them the very critical, valuable feedback that they needed in that moment, but was uncomfortable to deliver because I know in the short term, it's there's going to be pain associated with that just because it's never fun to receive that. I wasn't the king in that instance. But after talking that through those scenarios through twice, the next week I had two instances and completely was the king. I delivered valuable feedback, not in a confrontational way, but was generative and created greater opportunity for that person that I was speaking with. And the unlock was what would the king do in that same way you know what would Kerouac do what would the king do in this situation or the magician is another one what would the magician do in this scenario so i have this problem of getting broad awareness for my event the going deep summit and i need to find a way that is worth it for other people to be advocates and evangelists for the event to their own community so instead of just a, a ask or something very transactional, the magician would find a way that's mutually beneficial for both parties and maybe a collaborative piece of content or project that we could work on together that is not only more valuable for me and will resonate more with that person's audience, but be even better for the person that I am asking to be an advocate or an ally for that. If that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So the way that you've approached this book in your life is that you when you face a situation, you can kind of run through what would the king do? What would the warrior do? What would the magician do? What would the lover do? So that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is there is an acknowledgement of the shadow side of each of these. So with the king, the, the good king is not exploitative, is not cruel, but the shadow side of the king is a tyrant. They just need it to be their way. They're going to through a fit or they're going to thrash or they're going to exert their power on people as opposed to you trusting the wisdom that is present within you to make something happen and that distinction as well. It sounds really good. It's so, very good. One, um, as part of this, some of these YouTube videos I've watched, one key to design is to ask, um, how else could we solve this problem? So if you've, if you've talked to your customers... In, in this case, it almost sounds like your customer is yourself. But if if you've talked to the person who has the problem, um, how could you design? How could you design a solution? Uh, would a sign work? Would a static sign work? Would a uh, would a active sign work? Would a person work? Could you design an app for this? What if you redesign the physical space? So to come up with a list of solutions about how could you solve this problem, this is the book that does it for you. How would, the, how would the good lover act? How would the good magician act? How would the good warrior act? How would the good king act? And then it sounds like a, you could self-reflect using these names later and say, was I the good one? Was I the shadow one? Yeah. Another really big part of this is the idea that in the long history of 
societies, there was always a really poignant event that was the transition from childhood to an adulthood and much more than a bar mitzvah or something now that's uh, maybe a, a small ceremony, but a real intense trial or, um, you know, deeply dangerous experience. And you came back to your society or your community afterwards as a man and people treated you differently, but you also had this kind of ripping moment, so to speak. And that is something that is largely gone in all the, all the places that I've known or or grown up. And so this book to some degree for me has been not necessarily a rip, but a, a push forward into letting go of some of the interests, some of the hangups that are associated with childhood and and more or less leaving those behind and leaning more forward into the mature masculine, the adulthood and getting rid of that childhood part. This book sounds excellent. I I strongly recommend it, um, obviously particularly for guys, but I think even, you know, for a uh, female out there to understand the masculine experience, I think is, is really powerful. Um, cool. So I don't know if you had, uh, any other recommendations that you wanted to make for people. We've already run for 50 minutes here, um, in a flow, but I don't know if there's any other, other things that people should be checking out. Uh, where can they connect with you to learn more about all the writing and projects that you're working on? I write a blog called the waiterspad.com. Um, and that blog is a collection of things I learned. So uh, in 2016, I did a week-long series on Rory Sutherland, who was just a really fascinating character. So I dove deep into um, how he views the world, how he approaches the world. He's got this these great ideas called mono solutions, and um, it stands for minimal, oblique, non-obvious. So what are really small things that you you can change to have really large effects in the future. And and I, I write a lot about uh, different podcasts and book I, books I read. So the waiterspad.com is where you can find anything that I've written. Awesome. And the podcast is also called Mike's Notes. Yes, the podcast is called Mike's Notes, and that is not updated as often as this one is. That's okay, though. It's always good. I always appreciate when it came out, and the ones you did with Rory were uh, particularly educational for me. Thank you so much for doing this, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, hope you enjoyed that. Please hit subscribe if you've not already done so and let us know what books you read in 2017 that were particularly poignant. Always looking to add new suggestions and recommendations to my list. I know Mike is in the same boat. So let us know on Twitter. He is at Mike Dariano. I am at Aaron Watson 59. Hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.